Hello, and welcome to episode 18 of the Newism podcast, where we talk to social innovators and disruptors to discover how they would shape a new, more inclusive economic system fit for the modern world. Our guest today is Rick Aubrey, a leading American social innovator. He established Rubicon Programs, one of the first social enterprises in the United States, which supports homeless people and those with mental health issues in transforming their lives by helping them find work and somewhere to live. His latest venture, New Foundry Ventures, is a laboratory for scaling social enterprises that are tackling poverty in the US. He is also training the next generation of social entrepreneurs through his work as a professor of social entrepreneurship at Tulane University. I'm speaking with a long-term friend of mine, uh, Rick Aubrey, who's in San Francisco at the moment as we speak. And um, I want to speak to Rick about the newism, about uh, what the potential is for this world and on what basis we might build it. But first, Rick, um, great, to, great to hear from you. Um, uh, tell us a bit about your background and how you got into this whole area of social entrepreneurship. Mel, it's always a pleasure to speak with you as well, and I look forward to our conversation. Uh, the way I got started in doing this was uh, starting off initially in the community mental health movement of the early 1980s, when we were trying to figure out ways to provide a better quality of life for people who are being released from mental hospitals here in the United States with no place to go. So my first introduction to this field was working in organizations that were trying to figure out new ways that people could integrate into the community. And that led me in 1986 to an organization uh, called uh, Rubicon Programs, where we were with mentally disabled and homeless men and women trying to find them places to live and some kind of vocational activity as part of what they did. We grew that organization over time, starting a variety of social businesses that help people move into the community, help them have money in their pockets, a place to live. So that's sort of how I got started in this professionally uh, in the early days of my career. And before that, uh, somebody who had been involved in a fair amount of political activities uh, in the late 60s and 1970s, dealing with uh, anti-war movements and such as that. So. That, that, that's what brought me to this, this world uh, initially. So that, that, that's really interesting because, you know, in, in this day and age, certainly in, in, in Europe, a lot of talk about mental health issues and stress from, from society. Do you see a lot, um, you know, from your work in the 80s through now, where people are simply struggling to cope with the, with the modern society that we've created? Yeah, it's a, it's a separate stream. The folks that we worked with uh, in those days had what are called serious and uh, persistent mental illness. So that's about 2% of the population who have a profound disability that's not simply a result of the stress of life. It certainly can contribute to bringing it on, but it's, it's fairly different from the, the, the challenge that you're talking about, which is with the world that's sometimes referred to as the 1% world or uh, you know, other social inequities world, there is a different level and kind of stress that affects the large mainstream of the population, which is that just coping with, with life uh, is almost an impossibility. Certainly here in the United States, there's lots of writing, lots of evidence of the fact that 
what used to be the middle class, what used to be the working class, simply cannot make it economically. There's just not a structure and a means to be able to survive. So whether it's the opioid crisis that we have here, or more transitory kinds of mental health issues that people have here, or other forms of stress, uh, is a different but some way similar parallel challenge that uh, a much larger percent of the population now faces that there really has not been a solution for. Uh, I mean, th th that's good that you are able to, um, you know, analyze it in that way, because I think um, a lot of times now people will talk about mental health issues and uh, everybody gets lumped together. And, and, and as, as a result of that, there's quite a lot of misunderstanding about it. So somebody who might might be having a bad day isn't necessarily having mental health issues, but somebody in a very different space maybe is. Um, and it, it, it's, it's fascinating your insights and experience there because a lot of people will talk about the fact that, you know, you have your 2%, but the other 98% is really under stress. And we've created a society that really isn't for us human beings. It's, 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 it's too fast. It's too mechanical. It's not about uh, human relationships anymore. It's about money. It's about things. And that we've gone completely in the wrong direction. Um, is that something you think is right? Well, I think there's, I think as usual, there's a lot packed into what you say. Some of it is just you and I are getting old and the kind of way the world <laughs> operates now, the technology of the world now, the way that our kids think about things is fairly different from us. And that's probably a good thing. So while, you know, those Luddites of us say, why don't you read a book? Why are you always looking at a screen and things like that? Uh, might have a combination of some truth. There's also a little bit of an unacceptance of the fact that the world is just changing. You know, people ride in cars rather than ride on horses. You know, there's no more buggy whip industry. Not all of these technological changes are necessarily a bad thing, but all of this gets compressed into this challenge that we face that not only is the world faster, not only is there more technology, less human contact, not only are there both advances and losses as a result of the fact that information is so accessible, but parallel but almost separately from that is the fact that the, the people who are inventing the new world are reaping the rewards of it at such an unfair balance with so much wealth flowing to so few who are significantly young that there's such a huge displacement for folks who just want to get up, do a job, have a, have a life, have a family, and their life, that doesn't exist anymore, that all of these things are happening simultaneously. How we live our lives, how we relate to each other, how we have economic stability, how we have loyalty to an organization or a community that will sustain us as long as we do our part. All of those things are breaking down together. And so this, this challenge gets complicated and sometimes there's uh, too much of a reduction that goes on in the analysis or too much gets compressed into the same issue. Oh, the problem is just that we don't talk to each other. All of these things are happening simultaneously and we don't really have a vision or a paradigm for how we can return to a quality of life and a more equal society so that everybody feels that they are engaged in life, they're part of life, and there's always going to be some that are wealthier, some that are poorer, but the disparities and the understanding 
of how the world operates has now become so bifurcated that it really is a huge challenge and we have to figure out some better way to make this work so that's what this is all about this is what this uh, this show that we're doing is all about so you know in terms of some constructive nuggets then in terms of you know getting us all to change direction to create something that's much better what do you think are some of the fundamentals or one fundamental that we need to get right and change pretty quickly well, I'm old school in this regard, but I think it's as simple as tax policy and how wealth is redistributed again. So, you know, it's easily lumped into, oh, you're just a communist, oh, you're just a socialist, oh, you just want the lazy people to get things that other people have earned. That's such a superficial and usually incorrect analysis that I think that's where we have to start. There's no reason why wealth needs to be as concentrated and protected to a smaller and smaller number of families in the United States, for example, that could not be corrected by tax policies that would leave people still wealthy, still with a difference in their lives from others, but not at the extremes as they are now. Similar to the Gilded Age we had here in the United States in the 1890s and the 1900s, the concentration of wealth is off the charts, literally off the charts. When you look at all of the charts of income distribution, wealth distribution, we've only had periods like this three or four times in our history. And those periods almost always led to some kind of massive reform movements, whether it was breaking up the trusts in the United States or leading to a Great Depression, they are unsustainable for both sides of the house, those very few lucky people who won the lottery and are at the top, and most of us who are not. So the government could, can, can have a huge role in doing this. Unfortunately, the government has been disparaged, it's been portrayed as incompetent, taxes are seen as a bad thing, but in fact, if you peel the onion back a little bit, you realize, well, is that really the case? So, for example, here in the United States, everybody says, oh, welfare is bad and uh, people should just have a rugged free spirit. But if you push one step closer to the same people who are advocating for what our current President Trump is advocating for, you say, well, so should we take away your Social Security? Oh, no, that Social Security is wonderful. Well, do you realize Social Security was simply a welfare program adopted in the 1930s by Franklin Roosevelt? And that's something that they used to say was socialism. Oh, that's not socialism. Well, what about Medicare? That's our policy here where all older people in the United States have pretty decent health care. You know, not as good as it could be, but you know, once you turn 65 in the United States, it's health care for all. Let's take away that. Oh, we're not going to do that. That's I paid for that. That's taxes paid for that. We got to keep Medicare. You even start getting to this current uh, huge uh, dramatic issue in the United States, what's sometimes called Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. Huge opposition. That's what got Trump and Republicans elected. Well, should we do away with Obamacare? Well, the tide has changed. It's now eight plus years. Most Americans like the core of Obamacare, that in fact, people should have these things. So if you peel the onion back a little, you know, half a step later, well, what do you think pays for all of that? Well, it's taxes. Well, 
I want that. Well, don't you think that people who are extremely wealthy ought to pay somewhat more taxes so that Social Security could be stronger, so that Medicare could be better, so that Obamacare could fix many of the glitches that are in that? Oh, well, wait a second. Maybe they should. So again, if you ask for the one thing that we could do, if you simply started getting at the tax code in the United States and made it a much more equitable system and made it possible for more of that money that's getting aggregated in a you know, few hundred families in the United States and had it dissipated so that more people could benefit, there's you know, one thing immediately that could be done. It's going to require a political movement. It's going to require political education. It's going to require informing people about you know, why it's in the better the best interest of the much larger general population to have a more progressive tax system. Anyway, I'm going on and on, but there's like to your, what's the one thing we could do that would have a big impact? There's one thing. Well, I mean, that's fascinating because lots of people, when, we, when I ask that question or talk to people about it, it's tax doesn't come up. But actually when you push back in it and say, well, we don't have any tax, what's the alternative? People are struggling to come up with, with an alternative. Um, but one, let me ask you kind of a connected question with that then, because the, 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 the ch another challenge in the world, not just the U.S., everywhere now, um, it, government seems to be in disrepute. And the governments are the people who collect the taxes and then spend the taxes. And it seems that the kind of whole trust is broken down with politicians and, um, and governments and in, in, in indeed leaders, if you like, and people are looking around for leaders. So it's almost like, well, if we're going to get the tax, if, if we agree with you and say, well, that's going to be a cornerstone of this new ism, another one surely has to be that we're going to have proper government. And how do, how do we get to that? Uh, it, well, part of it has to do with somehow getting past what we experience, at least here in the United States, which is partisanship to the extreme, where everybody is vilifying to such a huge extent the other that it leaves everybody feeling you know a pox on both their houses they're all they're all bastards you know government can't work and you know government is never going to be perfect ever government's never going to be efficient it's always going to be messy uh it's never going to be great and you can always find some pockets of uh you know, really bad government performance. I think we just have to accept that we want to get to uh, a better than average media, mediocre government that does enough to take care of what basically is essential in terms of uh, making sure that nobody starves on the street, that the, the trains run on time, that the roads are working, that, uh, you know, the, the police don't shoot innocent people. I mean, all the sorts of things that, you know, are in the realm of improving how government operates. Uh, and stop vilifying, oh, those government employees are lazy. Most government employees I know are not lazy. They, they're, they're working men and women who just go and do their jobs and are getting paid too much, but getting paid a fair salary and have decent retirements. And, you know, that's, you know, it, they could be better. They could improve. They could, on the margins, they could become more efficient. But as long as they're not being vilified, as long as their jobs are not being made impossible, as long as there's good oversight, as long as there are leaders who give clear hope to people and are good administrators, things can be better. But as long as everybody's always 
so hyperpartisan that nothing can get done or then you get the extremes on either side. Uh, in our country, it's primarily the extreme on the right now that is really the, the agents of uh, causing havoc, uh, just destroying things, but really not in the interest of the largest number of people, but in the interest of a very small number in our country, at least, of you know, very high wealth people who are controlling most decisions. Those are the things that need to be overcome through, you know, public awareness, public education, making it an inspiring thing to be in the government and not so quickly uh, becoming hyper-partisan and just get to some better spirit of getting things done and compromise. I'll stop there. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's true, though. I think probably government does get a bad rap, but then I, I just wonder whether, you know, we are living in a kind of post-democratic age now, whether the government institutions uh, are no longer fit for the modern world. So, you know, I, I've, heard, I've heard it said that, you know, you know, after, after the Second World War, you know, our, our parents' generation and grandparents' generation, the vote was very precious. That vote um, that they'd fought for, uh, for the democracy, they voted and they expected then their representatives to represent them. And to an extent they did in, in the way that you're describing, kind of approximately, it was okay. Um, but, you know, in, in, this world, in this modern world, I, Governments, particularly politicians, seem to be very slow compared with everybody else who can be very fast. And so therefore, they continually look left behind. As you say, they're always kind of having these intense arguments with each other over nothing, it seems, sometimes, when actually everyone's screaming out for a bit of a leadership. Do you think there's maybe a bit of a crisis of leadership? Um, you know, I, we, we both heard Klaus Schwab, uh, the president of the World Economic Forum, the other day talking about the fact that you know we were living in the fourth industrial revolution and that new leaders were called for who had different values do you think we're maybe moving into an age which is kind of post-democracy and then that's a key of a way forward for this newism the concept of post-democracy scares me because i don't know if we know what that alternative is and i think about phenomenon such as the arab spring uh, in 1917 in Russia, that you have, you know, clearly an inability of the government and an uprising of the people, and, you know, just as the who says, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. I mean, what will post-democracy be? Uh, and uh, I'm not willing, I'm not ready yet to, uh, Maybe I just don't have enough of a vision to see what that actually could be. I, I totally agree that uh, governments as they're currently operating have huge challenges, uh, that there has been a failure of leadership in many countries, uh, you know, significantly in the uh, emerging nations, corruption is totally out of control. Um, but if we talk about post-democracy, is that China? where the government has the interests of the people seemingly in mind, but, you know, it's, there's no dissent tolerated and there's a huge amount of corruption. Post-democracy, they've raised more people out of poverty than anybody else has uh, in the last 30 years. It's quite remarkable what they're doing. I don't know if I would use them as the model for what we would like to see, which is a centralized government making decisions. Uh, 
is the kind of work that we've done over our career with our fellow social entrepreneurs, the alternative to the democratic movement. So social entrepreneurship grew out of market failures and governments and countries that just didn't respond to challenges. And we've helped create lots of new innovative ways to solve huge problems. And some of us have had more success in getting these adopted by the mainstream. I'm not sure that that is in fact a kind of model that can scale in the same way that democratic governments can to really get at billions of people rather than you know tens or hundreds of thousands or perhaps even a few million people whose lives we've been able to touch through our uh, movement in the social entrepreneurship world. So I'm not ready yet to give up on government as much as I hate it and they're slow and they're bureaucratic and they, they burr off the important edges of new innovations and make it just sort of okay. But you know, maybe okay for hundreds of millions is better than uh, just perfect for tens of thousands. So that that's that's the dilemma that I'm always thinking about. It's 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 really interesting because um, you know what you're describing is is in many ways like a lot of social entrepreneurs. It's um, yeah, this is all interesting, but practically, how do we move forward? So, you know, something like a completely new um, democracy or democracy 2.0, yeah, maybe, but but how does that work? And practically, how do we do things? And social entrepreneurs, as you know, we kind of, as you said, we go into where there's areas of market failure. Um, but I guess I guess my kind of bit pushback to you is that it seems to be we've got market failure everywhere. And, 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 and people are looking around and, you know, the, the, the notion of then that we're potentially living in the fourth industrial revolution has been described. The, the, the thing about revolutions is I don't think you know you're in the revolution at the time. It's only afterwards. So that the last industrial revolution, people didn't know they were in the middle of it. It's just the factories were being built everywhere and, you know, uh, steel and coal were, were, were being produced, etc. Uh, but but maybe we are and maybe what i'm suggesting in this new ism is that we've got to find sense of this which is not just about you know tax systems or government system but it's actually values the key to start off with is what values do we have so are we saying no actually we're not going to have greed is not acceptable entrepreneurship is acceptable innovation is acceptable but hey, there's a limit to how much you can you can you can store up in yourself. And so, what we don't want are these huge conglomerates that are global and don't pay tax, for example. Uh, but then, how do you stop that? And how do you what's what's the optimum? And all these questions then pop out, I think. But maybe, maybe you could tell me what do you think some of the, the fundamental values should be in this newism that we should be having in in in, in the future? Uh citizenship, engagement, recognition that it's not just your life, but the much larger community that you're engaged with that has to be at the top of your list when you make decisions. I, you know, I, I only know this on a little bit of a surface level, just what I read in the paper, but I think there's a fascinating uh, exemplar of this playing out right now in San Francisco. Uh, as you know, San Francisco is the hub of everything new, incredible <laughs> wealth that's here, every yeah, yeah. Twitter, Facebook, Uber, blah, blah. I mean, they're all here. They're all located here. 
we also have the most embarrassing, horrible homeless problem imaginable. Right next to each other, juxtaposed, you know, some of the areas you visited, Mel, here in San Francisco in the Tenderloin are chock-a-block up against all of the new corporate offices for Facebook, for uh, Twitter, Uber, uh, Salesforce. They're all right there. I mean, the, the contrast is mind-blowing. So there's a proposition on this November's ballot to raise uh, the taxes on the corporate citizens of San Francisco for $300 million to be paid to, to deal with this homeless issue. Uh, it's a fascinating issue. You know, there's, you can make, there's, side, there's two sides that are being drawn. But right now, the two leading uh, proponents for either side Opposing it is Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, who says, well, if you put this tax on us and businesses disproportionately have to play a lot of money, uh, we're not going to set up our businesses here. It's, you know, we just have to have a better policy. Interestingly, on the other side, the actually the largest employer in San Francisco now is Salesforce. And Mark Benioff, who is the CEO of it, is the major contributor to supporting paying this tax, taking a values-driven position. This is a huge problem. We make the money. We should pay it as taxes. It's not just going to be our individual philanthropy that's going to do it. We have to do it through our tax policy and we should pay more taxes and we're going to get the biggest tax hit as a result of it. So it's fascinating to watch it out. You could, you know, you could, you know, make statements that, oh, it's just, you know, it's just marketing or whatever. But I, th I think there's more going on there. I think that there really is a little bit more of a values-driven debate that's going on about it. It's not just through our philanthropy, but it's going to be through our tax and corporate policies that if we're going to get inequality, we have to do something about it. So I think you're absolutely spot on about values, you know, which start on an individual level, and then what do you do with them and how do you impose them? Uh, it's going to be what can start getting us out of, out of this thing. We in the United States... I think have let uh, this, you know, one-tenth of one percent off the hook a little bit through philanthropy. And people get to, rather than pay taxes, decide how to use some of their money to do uh, charitable activities. And they're all lauded for doing that. And there's fancy terms like philanthrocapitalists and all that get thrown around. And while I'm happy that they're spending money, you have to wonder if, how much of that money are they spending that they wouldn't have in the first place if we had more progressive tax policies that actually let somebody else decide how to spend it rather than these folks. So those are the sort of values issues that I think can start leading us out of there, which is people recognize throughout the world, we are a part of a larger society just because we got lucky or we were smart or whatever. We shouldn't be, so, A, having all this money, and B, solely deciding ourselves how it gets spent because we don't want the government to do it. So that I've not heard before ever a situation where you have two large corporates yep. uh, taking opposite positions. Normally, as you know, it's a kind of, would be a large corporate against charity or NGO or, or a political group of people. But two corporates arguing with each other about how best to tackle what is extreme poverty. And I've seen that in the Tenderloin, as you say, that is absolutely fascinating. Um, 
and it's 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 as you say if, if you're having these values-based discussion then other people can easily get involved in this discussion you don't have to be on one side or the other but you can start to say yeah what's this all about my position is, is as you'll know is uh, i take a view of there shouldn't be any homelessness in the world anyway so how on earth is a how on earth in a rich city like san francisco are there homeless people there in the first place so how how do we how do we make sure that there aren't because we can do because we've got the wherewithal uh, and and particularly in 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 a city like san francisco the the, the huge intelligence create all, create all these corporates and all these genius techno technological advances so I, I find it that's that's really heartening to hear that that discussion is going on actually, um, and um, maybe maybe I need to get Mark Benioff on on uh, on this on this program and kind of talk to him about it. Absolutely. Well, you know, it's easy to watch this debate because, of course, it's all happening on Twitter. <laughs> you yeah, know? of course. And. Despite the fact that Jack Dorsey has his company, Mark Benioff is using his own company against him, and he's he's raising these values questions. You know, that's but, exactly. it, but it, again, again, you know, the, the the other kind of position before you mentioned China earlier. I mean, they they have a view where where charity just you know is is almost like an alien concept. They don't want it. They have three charities there or something. Um, and basically, um, that charities are they would say it's not about politics; they're just inefficient. And, and, and demeaning in terms of the way they, they, they behave. And therefore, it's the state that can take, is, is responsible for the social protection of its citizens, and so therefore the state does it. I mean, and, and yet in America, you, you have a huge, um, huge amounts of money. People are incredibly generous, I find. And I don't think I'm exaggerating. Um, in, in the US in terms of the giving. People will give, you, you'll know much better than me about this. But there's a completely different value system, China to the U.S., in terms of its giving, in terms of how it looks after its people. And, of course, China will tell you there's no homeless people there in their country. <laughs> well, <laughs> I've got a few folks I can introduce them to, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's, 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 um, I, I, I do find that, that, that values discussion is, is at the kind of core of it. And there are others as well. I mean, I don't know what you... You know, we haven't talked about community, and a number of other people I've spoken to have said that at a core has to be community. Would you agree with that? What, what would you think? What What in your mind does community mean in this modern age? Uh, I, I would agree. It's a, it's a, just as you you answered your own question. What we romantically think of community and what community is now is much more complicated. Uh, there's no more village green preservation societies that I know of. Uh, yeah. There's no more village greens for all I know. Uh, you know, the, the whole idea of, of creating, being part of something that you took pride in, that was civic, that had a lot of folks that you even know tangentially, but that you identify as part of a community is very missing in most of, uh, most of our lives. I mean, the, the communities that I have, and I'm sure you do as well, and many folks do, are communities of folks at work. You know, you have some camaraderie with folks at work, those of us engaged in sports to some extent. You know, there's a great community of the people that we do our sports with, you know, in my case, the guys I bicycle ride with or whatever, you know, and that's a lovely community of people where it doesn't matter what work you do or, you know, Democrats, Republicans, all sorts of folks all mished up, you know, but we just, 
spend a lot of time together and have you know respect and will do anything for each other and you know something happens and you're and you're there uh, there's less and less opportunities for having those kinds of communities and I think finding ways to get back to that is important uh, it, it sometimes gets romanticized. It sometimes gets, again, turned into something too extreme. I'm old enough to have been part of what used to be called intentional communities in the United States. You know, the furthest extent of that was communes and other things like that, or what Rajneesh, I never did this, obviously, but what Rajneesh tries to set up. So you can over-romanticize it, and you can force community, and you can have both this sort of dreamy, ideal thing, and then take a little bit, too much take it too far because those are too hard to maintain but like everything else in life there's a happy medium somewhere of more natural communities where you have some you know shared self-interest and you go out of your comfort zone a little bit to do things with other people and you enjoy it and everybody of knowing that and that's what we need to get back to that's what the facebook's and the twitters have tried to create uh, in my uh, ancient experience Luddite experience again. I think that that's a bad path for us to have taken. I think that the so-called Facebook communities tend to actually keep people apart rather than together. So as nice as it is to know, you know, that it's the birthday of somebody I went to high school with thirty some forty some odd years ago, it keeps me from actually having to get out and interact with people in the real world rather than just send a. Facebook thumbs up or a tweet. So I, I, I don't think that is the path to creating communities. Uh, I could be wrong. This could be, again, an age thing on my part. Uh, but I just don't think that those are deep and substantial and motivating for action and political engagement in the ways that community needs to be. So one core thing could be about where, where no matter where our technology is, it's about people being together. Is a, is a key thing in whatever in 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 work or in 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 neighborhoods or or wherever um sharing interest and um, you know supporting one another family units and so on is critical it's about human interaction it's, I think it's so. key. one 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 other area because I, I know you you've been involved particularly in your uh, recent years is kind of in in, in education and you know, where's education in all this? We, um, it, it, in terms of this incredibly fast-paced modern world, have we got the education right? Is, is it, it, or, or, because it seems that, you know, once again, Klaus Schwab and, 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 and talked about, you know, the talent. It was what we needed was talent now, that that was going to be the thing that was going to be key. Um, it was about uh, identifying and, and, and raising talent uh, um, uh, I, what about education? Is, is it like government as well, kind of getting left behind here and in the dust as everybody else moved on? And, and, and don't we have an obligation to educate people to be part of what's happening? Well, you know, I think Klaus is both right, but I'm a little chilled by simply putting the word of talent in it. So similar to what you were saying earlier, what education used to be better about focusing on was uh, values and citizenship. And both of those, I mean, that was why we started uh, public education in the United States was to have, you know, 
hey, we realize, holy crap, you know, people get to vote and make the governments and some of them are just farmers that can't read a book. We better, you know, get people smart enough to read newspapers so they know what the hell they're going to vote for. So, you know, public education was to a large extent uh, created to have a better informed citizenship. Uh, colleges, which used to be fairly elite at the same time, were primarily about maintaining the, the value set of the culture. So there's lots of challenges. It was very Eurocentric. It was very white. It was very Western European. But simultaneously, it was very much about remembering why Socrates and Aristotle matter and, you know, what was learned, you know, by the thinkers in the Middle Ages and all of, all of those sorts of things. So people who graduated from colleges really were much broader thinkers about the challenges in the world. And now the movement is to just creating talent to figure out how to code better, to build smarter, autonomous cars. And so while that has a certain inevitability, as soon as you become just talent producers and you wash out the values and the much broader, you know, world-centric understanding of, you know, why the insights of Lao Tzu or, uh, you know, the, the, what can be gleaned from the Bhagavad Gita or from the Greeks or from uh, what was developed in uh, the, you know, the very rich community tribal cultures in Africa. I mean, if you don't, if you wash the values out of education and you just improve talent, we're going to miss what you already identified as what's critical to save the world, which is have values-driven people being in decision-making roles about what matters beyond just the talent to create smarter cars. So, well, yeah, I mean, I think that, so from, from an education perspective, somehow uh, education really has to figure out how to do better uh, at keeping both, you know, keep the humanities, uh, keep the historical perspective about how the world needs and best operates at the same time as you're helping people become, you know, better, smarter, faster engineers and uh, technicians. Yeah, I think that's very clear. So let me ask any finally here, um, just about social entrepreneurs. So, I, I mean, we, we've both been identified as one. We recently always when, when the social entrepreneurs get together, there's high energy, um, uh, very kind of practical discussions about how, to create sustained lasting change uh, uh, but but some people will say the social entrepreneurs are just a kind of they've just just arrived at a time and and and, and their time will come and then go and then really that there's nothing there or others will say no actually this is a sector that's emerging this is a kind of clear set of people who um, actually are potentially leaders in this sector globally has value and will create change which side of the fence are you on? Are, are, are we a bit of a fashion of the band that's coming and done some good, but it's just going to die away uh, as we all die away? Or, or, or is this something much more sustained and is actually going to be a plank for a future, a future world? Well, to some extent, time will tell, as it will in everything. <laughs> uh, but I think time is telling us something because it's now been, you know, 20 plus years that we've been together as a community and there was... 10, 20 years before that, that the folks who finally came together in our tribe were already doing their thing. And it's 
seems to have some legs, as we say here, right? It, it, it hasn't faded away so much. It, you know, the impact has been perhaps less than we would have wished, but it still is, there's something there and it continues to grow. So whether it was my time on the board of the Schwab Foundation, trying to find the next set of social entrepreneurs, you know, I initially went into it arguing, you know, we've got a, we've got a set of folks that are doing great work. Why are we going out there looking for more people? And to some extent, I wish that, uh, you know, more focus was given on, you know, sustaining some of the uh, elders of the tribe. And I think there's value in that. And at the same time, I have been quite amazed by the, the again, the legs and the sustainability of people who are doing work, who are starting doing this work, who have been doing it, you know, outside of the spotlight. So I think this social entrepreneurship movement and long-winded answer to your pithy question, I think this will last and I think it is in fact going on. And I, I, I think we haven't seen yet the full impact that this movement can have. And is it, would you say it's a defined sector? Because again, if I'm looking at this newism, is 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 it a kind of one of a one of a kind of key brick in the foundations of this newism? Social entrepreneurship's always going to be there. There are these type of people around. It's a clearly defined sector, which isn't charities. It's not business. It's something actually completely different. It's it's part of a newer paradigm. You know, I th I I think it is. I don't know. I don't want to make a silly analogy, but I think it's not just simply one thing that has clear, bright, white lines around what is a social entrepreneur and what is not. Uh, I think it's a little bit more of a mindset, and I think it significantly but not exclusively happens within uh, organizations, you know, developed as nonprofits, but I think there are for-profit social entrepreneurs out there. I think there are social entrepreneurs operating in government institutions that are just, it's really more about innovating, creating new ways to solve problems, uh, defining new structures, sticking with it for a long time, having enough hubris to think you're onto something and pushing on it, pushing on it, pushing on it. But the actual form that your social entrepreneurship takes is not merely an organization that you start, that you grow. It could happen in many different places. So it's not just a brick, it's more uh, something maybe in the mortar around these bricks or something like that, that just strengthens. Yeah, I, I think I would probably agree. It's not as yet, it's not clearly defined because then I could say to you, well, is Mark Benioff a CEO and founder of Salesforce? Is he a social entrepreneur? Right, I think that lays us down a, uh, uh, an angels on the head of a pin kind of debate uh, that I, you know, <laughs> you're absolutely right. I think it's, you know, it's just a quality of thinking differently about how things operate, you know, and trying to create social change. I mean, his primary activity is, you know, running a computer software customer management company. So probably he wouldn't be called a social entrepreneur because the primary product of his activities is not, you know, a social good creator, and it's a little bit more on his personal value side. So, you know, if, in, a, in a strictly academic, professorial way, I'd say, no, he's not a social entrepreneur. But I think in the sense of, does he recognize that we have to have a slightly different vision for how the society needs to operate? And we need to think a little bit more broadly about, you know, society rather than just self, 
aggrandizement. You know, he's he's got a similar mindset in that regard. Okay, Rick, we'll, we'll, we'll have to finish there um, because we are trying to sort out the world and it just takes a bit of time to talk these things through. So we will get there or we're trying to do that. But it's um, always, always fabulous uh, talking to you and um, hope to see you very soon in, in Mexico, maybe. Um, but I really appreciate your time um, taking to talk and um, I'm sure lots of people will listen to what you've got to say. Thank you very much, Rick. Well, thank you very much, Bill. Always a pleasure chatting with you as well. It was so interesting to hear Rick say the transforming tax policy is a key to creating a fairer, more inclusive economic system. We'd love to hear what you think. Let us know via Twitter at Newism Talks or via our website, newismtalks.com. Next week, we'll be talking to Carl Zimmer, the founder of FirstBook, which creates equal access to quality education via a sustainable, market-driven model. We hope to see you then.